On to today's topic, the cassoulet. Firstly, I wanted to ask you, where is it from? Uh, well, that's a really good question because depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different, you know, answer. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests, they're all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk, write, or photograph it. But above all, they love it. We've covered the wines of the Languedoc region recently and, of course, the Confit de Canard, which is a fabulous ingredient from that region. But what about the dish that is usually made with the Confit de Canard, the cassoulet? Well, today we are chatting with Sylvie Bigard, who's a lover of today's topic, the cassoulet. Sylvie loves it so much that the dish even inspired her latest book. So let's jump headfirst, if we can, into a cassoulet dish. Grab a glass of something, sit back and enjoy my chat with Sylvie Bigger, all about the cassoulet. Uh, Sylvie Bigger, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And good morning, Andrew. Good morning oui. for me from New York. We, oui, I think it's, uh, uh, well, it is. I not think it is afternoon for me here in France. What am I saying? I think. So, Sylvie, before we talk all things uh, cassoulet, I wanted to get to know you a bit better and uh, uh, I wanted to ask, so your mum is French from what I believe and she was born in Paris, is that right? Yes, she was born in Paris um, in 1925, so she is 96 and a half. Whereabouts in Paris did she grow up? So she grew up um, on a small lane called Villa Georges Sand, Villa Georges Sand, number six, um, in the 16th arrondissement. What has she told you about her experience growing up in Paris? Her experience in Paris, um, I think, was... Uh, magical or maybe it was a little idealized also because of what happened to her later um, but she loved her life in Paris her parents lived on the second floor of uh, one of these Osmanian building um, and uh, there was a what she called a square a little square there so she went there not very far from a garden called the Jardin du Ranlag and um, she had an older brother whom she adored, who was seven years older than, than her. So I think the, she got a lot of the focus um, in the family. Um, her father was a, an engineer, uh, but he was working with dams around the world. He was actually one of the first French uh, engineers to travel to Morocco back in the 1920s and uh, work on the first Moroccan dam. Um, so he also always had a lot of stories. Were your family foodies? As Well, I suppose all French are, but were, were they in particular? I think that my grandparents were what you could say, you could tell, you know, foodies, you could call foodies. Um, I don't know if they would travel for specific restaurants the way my paternal grandparents did because they were in a different class, as we say. Um, but my grandmother cooked. I actually have an old cookbook of hers with Alsatian recipes 
because the family is originally from Alsace. So, I mean, we have goose, um, you know, roasted and knöpfli and things that are a little esoteric, let's say, uh, for the day. But yes, they they loved to eat. They did. Absolutely. Even though, um, you know, they weren't part of the um, sort of the chic, roaring 20s uh, world. And, and actually, those years, the 20s were um, fabulous for a lot of people, but they were also, I think, pretty tough for the middle class, the French middle class, you know, coming off uh, World War One. Your uncle was really interesting. He, so you mentioned that he was seven years older than your mum, but uh, I've actually read an article of yours where he was actually in the French resistance. Is that right? Yes. So my, my uncle, uh, who in the book is called Frédéric, but that's not his real name. Um, his real name was Claude, actually. He was in the French resistance, um, but he had a, a very uh, dramatic destiny. And to tell you the truth, he was born in Sao Paulo. He was my mother's half-brother. Uh, so he was born in Brazil and uh, died in 1944 at age 26. And um, and my mother's life was sort of um, fractured uh, from this loss. I mean, she never really um, got over that. And to tell you the truth, my uncle is the hero of my next book. Do you know a lot about his experience during the war then? I know more about his experience during the war than I know about his experience before. Because the last time my mother saw him, he was seven, she was 17. Um, and so she then led her life with this ideal image of this older brother, you know, a very striking young man that I met, um, you know, on a black and white photo on the nightstand of, of my mother. He was there in his, you know, wooden frame my whole life. Um, sort of, you know, looking at me with this kind of little smile. And uh, and then I took my own son to a um, commemoration of the Battles of the Vercors, uh, the 75th anniversary of the Battles of the Vercors, you know, above Grenoble. And um, something happened there. I had a I mean, it's, I don't want to sound completely cuckoo, but um, I had sort of an encounter um, and I felt that he was telling me I needed to write about him. So you were born in Geneva. Why did your mum end up there? So basically what happened is that my mother lived in Paris until July 16, 1942. She had just uh, passed her um First, the first part of her bac, the baccalaureate, the very difficult, um, you know, exam at the end of high school. Um, she actually had been chosen as one of the best students in her lycée, the lycée Molière in Paris, and uh, she had been sent on a, uh, a national competition for Latin, Greek, and French, and she had come back uh, with the second prize. So she was on a high. She had just finished that. Uh, life was wonderful, even though obviously French was, you know, at war. But um, for some 
unknown reason, my grandparents, who were Jewish, um, were also uh, feeling that they were not um, in danger because they were Swiss. They had Swiss passports because the, the family was originally from Switzerland, um, both Alsace and Switzerland. And so they were in complete denial of what was happening until that fateful night, uh, July 16, 1942, when uh, the French police actually came and knocked on the door, intent on taking my mother and her mother away. And that became known as the rafle du vel d'Ive, uh, the, the Velodrome d'Hiver, where uh, a lot of all these people were, were taken. And it was an absolute miracle that um, hearing the knock on the door at four in the morning, um, my mother and her mother were able to escape through the kitchen door because a lot of these apartments in the Haussmannian buildings in France have two entrances, one for, for, the, for the family and one for the maid, right? And so they were able to flee uh, through the roof and escape um, that way, and they never went back to that apartment. So then after that, um, the family hid in Paris for a few weeks and then was able to take a train and pass uh, across the free zone. Uh, at the time, France was still divided in two. The German army had not invaded the entire country. And so they were able to um, to be safe that way. And then um, a miracle really take a train to Switzerland. And so they were, um, they were refugees in, in Switzerland. Lovers of French food, wait no more. I've got the French food cooking experience just for you. Come join me here in Montmorillon for one and three day cooking experiences that take in French markets as well as visits to local food producers and lots and lots of cooking. Oh, and eating of course, with the occasional glass of wine. But above all, good company and lots of fun. Book your class with me via andrewpryorfabulously.com. But hurry, places are filling fast. No, I have uh, I have wonderful memories of growing up in Geneva. Uh, I grew up in sort of a, an enchanted uh, property. It's sort of a mini Downton Abbey on Lake Geneva. And uh, my I had three older sisters, but my sisters were um, pretty, they were much older than me. So they... Um, moved on and I was very much uh, an only child for a lot of my childhood. The garden was magical um, and I played and played and ran and was a pretty wild uh, tomboy climbing on trees and um, doing all kinds of things I wasn't supposed to do like uh, spying on the gardener and things like that oh all right okay <laughs> yeah but it it was a it, it was a pretty um unique childhood because we lived in this house this sort of uh, what what seemed to be kind of a magical um atmosphere but then there there was a family there who worked for us a cook okay yes and and uh, and her husband, the butler, and uh, they had two kids, and I grew up with these two children as well. And so, you know, at the end of the play day, 
one would go back to the very formal dining room and the other would run to the kitchen door. So I was going to ask who cooked in the house then. So you had a cook. What kind of things did, did she cook? Well, she cooked, Carmela cooked what my mother told her to cook. And by I, I remember these morning sessions in my parents' bedroom when the cook uh, would come up with a... Uh, you know, a pad of paper, or actually, I think it was slate. It was kind of an ardoise. Um, and, uh, and she had chalk and she wrote down, she and my mother discussed the menu of the week or the menu of the day. I don't remember. And it was basically very boring and bland French food. Um, or what I saw as very boring because I already knew that what she, what Carmela was cooking in the kitchen that smelled so much better, full, Carmela was Spanish. And I was just about to say, where was she from? So, so they were, the family were getting all this lovely Spanish food and you weren't. That's right. And so that, that sort of, you know, always tickled my nose and I would sort of go in and see what was happening with all this garlic and onions roasting in olive oil and then you know we would be eating you know steamed haricot vert so um <laughs> it, it was really well, different there's nothing wrong with that but i mean steamed haricot vert i suppose is a little bit different when it's coming from you know the middle of france or the south of france and they're fresh off the vine like off you pick them off and they, they smell amazing to possibly in geneva where i'm not sure haricot vert is going to be growing as much as it would be here but yes mm. one of the resonating themes for people that have come on fabulously delicious when i talk about food is to find out from them who influenced their food and usually it would be their mum or their dad whoever cooked in the household and that affects their relationship as well with their parents i know that i didn't have the best relationship when i was growing up with my mum and i never cooked with my mum uh, you know, my mum was half Czechoslovakian and half Italian, but she didn't get that Italian gene. Too bad. So the cooking was everything with a bit of salt. I know. I really wanted the nonna, you know, like the making tomato sauces and the pastas. Oh, yeah. But having a cook, do you think that affected your relationship with your parents? That, you know, in, in that sort of a way that you didn't have that sort of bonding over food or preparing food with your mum? We definitely did not have that bonding over food. Um, I think that my passion for food was very much organic. It's something that I felt. And, I, and we made fun of it in a way because both my sets of grandparents were foodies, really. But my parents were not interested in food at all. And in fact, I remember my, my mother, um, unfortunately, uh, was anorexic and she ate very differently um, from the way we ate. And it took me a very long time, years really, to understand why she would be served, you know, a uh, vegetable broth when we were having cream of mushroom. If she's not preparing that meal for you and you're not having those conversations with her while she's doing that, that would make it even harder to understand why why she's doing that, why she's just having vegetable broth when you're not. Exactly. But but I had great conversations with Carmela, the cook. I was about to ask that, yes. <laughs> so did she influence your food and your, your love of food? 
I think so. I think both both her and and her husband um, really influenced my uh, outlook because they sometimes would take me with them because I was the same age as their son and I grew up with him. And so on Sundays, they would go uh, in the countryside to outings and meet some friends of ours, also other people from Spain. And that's where I discovered cooking paella on uh, on an open fire in the middle of... Um, yes, I know. Sorry, listeners. That's where Louis has just jumped up. Unfortunately, no, but I, have just, the, I have the same dog, Andrew. Right. I've got two. There's another one just here. So both golden retrievers. Yes. Me too. So, just so that you know, it's actually the worst time to record because in 30 minutes, it's his tea time. <laughs> no, Louis, you sit down. People do not want to know about you wanting dinner. You stay there. You now live in New York. I love New York, but it's so full on. It's like, it's to me, it's a sensory overload. What's it like actually living there? Well, it's been very different since COVID. I, I cannot, you know, not mention that. Um, during COVID, you've all seen the images of the empty avenues and um, the um, ambulances going around and the sirens and the the fear that was sort of pervasive in those streets. Uh, New York is back. New York is completely back. It's back with a vengeance. It's noisy. It's dirty. Uh, people are walking around with, you know, most amazing sense of purpose. Nobody is ever strolling in New York. They're just going somewhere. And I, loved New York. I fell in love with New York when I first came here as a student. Um, and then after a while, you know, I got married, I had my kids, um, and I was sort of wondering why, why am I here? And, uh, COVID made this feeling, um, stronger, but let me just tell you that right now, I think I'm falling in love with New York again. I have I've been to the theater. I've been to see fabulous uh, flamenco show in a converted church a few weeks ago. The restaurants are booming. I was going to ask that. What's the food like in New York? Well, in New York, you can eat anything at any time of the day. There are people eating in restaurants, on the streets, in the park. I mean, everywhere. And New York was always, you know, if you were lucky enough to be able to afford it, sort of a food capital of the world. How did you get into writing? Well, I always loved to write. And I always uh, felt that it was the way that I was expressing myself. Um, but I worked in my first career as a publicist in the classical music industry. I actually worked at Carnegie Hall and for the New York Philharmonic. And my favorite part of publicity was always the writing. So once I decided I wanted to switch to a different career, I brainstormed about which other things in life do I love. Music was a was a first love, um, and food and travel, you know, was obvious. And and I realized that the way I'd grown up. Um, 
could actually be interesting to people that um, somehow my palate had been developed um, by the different uh, food that I tasted as a kid. So your typical, you know, gigot d'agneau uh, on, on Sunday for lunch, and then maybe the Sunday after, after that, um, paella, you know, in the woods with, uh, with Carmela and her family. And I became sort of uh, uh, not an expert, far from that, but someone who had had interesting food experiences. And I realized that I could write about that. And what is the most interesting thing that you've written about? Well, I think that the most interesting thing I wrote about is actually writing about chefs and the way that they approach food, the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. I'm always interested in people. I'm always interested in meeting new people. I'm intrigued. How did you get here? Uh, who are you? What's, what are the currents of, of you know, your ancestry? I'm always fascinated by that. And uh, so, for example, I wrote a lot about um, Danielle Boulou, one of our top chefs here in in New York City. And Daniel was born in Lyon. He was born on the farm uh, in Lyon. And he helped his parents both, you know, in the fields, but then also going to the markets on, uh, you know, on the weekends and selling some of the things that they were growing. And I think this, um, this background completely made him into who he is, even though he is now, you know, a Michelin star chefs with about you know 20 restaurants around the world but he just opened in New York City a, a restaurant called Le Gratin downtown with specialties from Lyon so all these years later he's in his mid 60s i believe um he's going back to his roots and so writing about his canal or his gratin dauphinois right? Um, and I don't even know if a lot of people realize that, you know, potato gratin it was, was basically birthed in Lyon, if I may say so. Um, and suddenly he's, he's writing about these homey, um, rustic dishes that he grew up with. That's what I love to write about. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, and family. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave me a review. A five-star one would be great, especially because that will help me get more fabulous guests for you to listen to and learn more from. Don't forget to share me around with your friends and family. I love to be shared around. Now let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. On to today's topic, the cassoulet. Firstly, I wanted to ask you, where is it from, the cassoulet? Well, that's a really good question because depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different you know, answer. I mean, in general, I think everybody agrees that the cassoulet which, you know, we need maybe to say exactly what, what is it? What is a cassoulet? The dish originated really, um, I, I believe, in the southeast of France, around Toulouse, around Carcassonne, uh, Castelnaudary, the village of Castelnaudary has proclaimed itself the world capital of cassoulet. 
Um, but people in Bordeaux also think that, you know, cassoulet is part of their heritage. The town that you mentioned then, it originated from, it's Castle... Castle... Castelnaudary. Castelnaudary. I'm not going to say it right. Castelnaudary. Castelnaudary. Have you been there? Yes, I have been there. What's it like? Castelnaudary is a, is a very uh, sweet town. Um, the Canal du Midi goes through it. Um, and uh, the whole region is absolutely gorgeous, actually. Uh, the region of Occitania, uh, recently renamed by you know, the reshuffling of the French regions. It, it also in, includes Languedoc. Uh, since you are in France, I think obviously a lot of people know the Languedoc region and the wonderful wines from Languedoc. We just did an episode on it, the, the Languedoc wines with uh, Carrie Dykes. We talked, talked all about it. So how did the dish come about from the, the Castle Dray? Castle Dray. Andrew, 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 the Castle Dray. Castle. Castle no, yes, no, the castle. Or the town. From the, Cas- t- the town. So so- how did the castle come from the castle dray? Yeah. <laughs> it's a tongue, tongue twister. It is, it is, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of legends, right, about the birth of castle and a lot of opinions. But there is one main legend, and um, people tell it as if it was a true uh, part of history, and maybe it's become a part of history. So it was during the Hundred Years' War um, in the 1300s, when the English and the French were battling. We know they've done that a lot over time. Um, and the town of Castelnaudary was uh, surrounded by the English army. And the provost of the, time, the town was wanting to prepare uh, the soldiers for what he saw would be the final assault. And so before death, before they were going to give up, of course, being in France, they had to eat. And they prepared, they asked everybody in town to bring uh, to the town square everything that they had left in their cupboard. And that included beans, herbs, some vegetables, pieces of meat. And so the legends tell, the legend tells, um, the story of this humongous uh, pot that was put on the fire and cooked and then whatever stew emerged from this was served to the soldiers, but it was so good and they felt so strong after this that as the legend goes, they went to battle and were able to push the English all the way back to the channel. One of its main ingredients is the beans. So where did France get beans from? Well, exactly. I mean, that's a really good question. At the time, it might have been fava, um, you know, so that that's a possibility. Uh, but in fact, the beans were introduced from uh, America. Beans beans are not indigenous to, to Europe. Um, so th- there's a lot of uh, reasons why... Maybe this story is not exactly correct. Um, And and also we've discovered that there are a lot of um, different stews with beans as a base from, from different cultures. 
There have been many versions, as you've mentioned, uh, of the dish, but in the 1900s, so no, 1900, there was a national debate as to what the cassoulet should be. Is that correct? Yes. I love a good national debate. Of course the French are going to have a national debate over a dish. <laughs> yes, I think the national debate is still going on. And, uh, you know, became, because I became completely obsessed by this dish, completely by chance after having been sent uh, to Carcassonne for a, a story, for a magazine story. Um, I've also, if, if I may say so, studied uh, the different uh, recipes for cassoulet. And the bottom line is there's three master recipes, you know, just like the French have their um, master sauces, sauce mère, right? Um, so there's three different recipes Castel Notary has one, Carcassonne has one, and Toulouse has one. And it basically revolves around what kind of meat you put in the stew. So all of them, the three of them, have beans and vegetables. But in Carcassonne, um, when you are allowed to hunt you and you can find them, you put red partridge um, inside, inside the stew. Um, in Castel Notary, it's pork, ham, and shank, and sausage. And then in Toulouse, uh, they add pork belly and mutton, and sometimes also goose or duck confit. So what would you consider is a traditional cassoulet? Well, I think a traditional cassoulet is whatever you want to make and whatever you have in your pantry. I mean, you're going to have to use beans. I think we all agree about that. But I've actually uh, created in the book, there's a few recipes at the end, and I've re I've created a recipe that is simpler and shorter than the other ones because the traditional cassoulet, we should say this, takes three days to make. Oh, my gosh. So I've created a <laughs> recipe that I've called gateway cassoulet that you can start in the morning and, and you know, have dinner Um basically by the end of the day. And so maybe some people will think that I'm a complete Philistine uh, to, you know, propose this recipe. But I, all I want to do is I want to whet your appetite. I want you to try it, see how easy it is, and then look at your calendar, look at maybe a, th a three-day weekend you've got coming on, and then decide, well, I'm going to try the real thing. Coming to France soon for a holiday or a weekend away? Do you have plans or dreaming of it, but you just don't know what to do? Overwhelmed with all the options or been so many times before, you want a new take on France and the places to go, people to see? Well, I can help you out with that. Jump on my website, andrewpryorfabulously.com and check out my itinerary service. You can book in a 45-minute Zoom call with me directly. That's right, with me directly. Then once we've discussed what you want, how long you're coming for and where you want to go, I'll create a fabulous itinerary personalised just for you. I'll help with places to go, things to do, hidden secrets, tips a local would know, restaurants and food recommendations, as well as any help with any bookings, etc. that you might need during this day. So what are you waiting for? Go to andrewpryorfabulously.com itinerary services and book in your call with me now. The name cassoulet is said to come from the actual dish that it's cooked in. So what is this dish and do we actually need that to make a cassoulet properly? Well, so the dish is called a, une cassole, right? And it's the, a clay pot. 
And of course, I believe that your cassoulet will be better if it's cooked in a clay pot. But if you have a Dutch oven at home, or if you have a big old, you know, casserole, you can use that as well. I mean, you don't need to become as obsessed as I have. Um, I've done that. No, we all do, Sylvie. We all need to become that yeah. obsessed. Yes. But what I love about the Castel is is the authenticity, is sort of the fact that um, this pot uh, comes from the earth, right? So, in fact, you're adding terroir to the stew just by cooking it in there. And there are several uh, places in France that, you know, pottery studio that... Uh, still still make cassoles. What should we drink with a cassoulet? Well, I believe that we should drink the wine of the region. Um, we should drink the wonderful Languedoc wines, whether it's a Corbière or a long, um, Minervois. Um, there's a lot of wonderful wines uh, there. There's a Limoux and uh, all kinds of winemakers, one of them that comes to mind is Gérard Bertrand, uh, is, is a major um, sort of a de defender of the Languedoc wines. He's really brought them actually to uh, the United States. And he makes rosé, but he also makes white and, and wonderful reds. There is an organization called La, La Grande Confrière du Casselet. And then they're actually located, as far as I'm aware, in Castle Castle Dre. Is Cast that right? Castel Nodari. Cast so we, so, so who are they? So they are a group of um, uh, chefs and restaurant owners that uh, have created this organizations in Castel Nodari. But the organization that I worked with from Carcassonne is actually called the Universal Academy of Cassoulet. And they, they're universal, right? So they don't want to hear about other kinds of associations from anywhere else. Um, and so I French. discovered, so French, I discovered them and I discovered the co-founder, Chef Eric Garcia, when I went there for the first time in 2008. You cooked with him. What was that experience like? Well, he taught me everything there was to know about cassoulet for sure. But he was not so um, happy to help me at the beginning. He was a little surprised. He was he didn't really understand why. I mean, I would come and write about cassoulet and then go back to the U.S. and write my articles. Then six months later, I'd be calling him again and he'd be like, Sylvie, again? I mean, don't they feed you there? And um, so I then begged him for, uh, you know, a stage, uh, an apprenticeship. And I was able to spend some time in his kitchen where I saw how he made cassoulet from scratch and more than scratch. I mean, on one occasion, and you can read about this kind of traumatic ep episode of my life, trying to cut up a pig head. Oh. Okay. Do <laughs> we need a pig head for the cassoulet? We don't, but we need we need pork. We need pork. We we need pork fat. We need pork skin. Um and and we need duck fat as well. And all of these um fats 
are actually much better for you than butter. Um, and they conspire to create the magical part of cassoulet, which I believe is the crust. And some people don't understand how that crust is formed. It's sort of this golden, bubbly, caramelized crust. And it, it really is a chemical reaction uh, from all of these fats together with the beans um, melting in the right way. And uh, it's magical. Where's your favorite place in France to have a cassoulet? Your favorite restaurant? Well, Eric Garcia's restaurant, unfortunately, is no longer um, because he's retired. So I would say at this point in time, the best cassoulet is from um, Hostellerie Etienne near Castelnaudary. And, and you need to eat cassoulet at lunchtime. Just like paella, it's not a dish that is usually served at night. It's a little too heavy for that. You had this experience and it changed your life. So you, you've written a book about this. Tell us about the book. So the book is actually two stories weaved into one. There is the story of the cassoulet, the region, my friendship with the chef, my discovering how one cooks cassoulet and the reasons why these ingredients are weaved into uh, the terroir of Occitanie. Um, but there is also a second story, which is the story of my family, sort of my um, dramatic childhood. And um, those two stories did not seem to have anything in common, but they do. And uh, at the end of the book, I realized why one was linked to the other and why this obsession with the dish was actually something very deep and ancestral. Fabulous. Well, I will put a link in the show notes for the book, um, but tell us again, what's the title again? So it's Cassoulet Confessions, Food, France, Family and the Stew That Saved My Soul. The question that I ask everybody that's been on Fabulously Delicious, and that is, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? That's a tough one. Uh, the most fabulous thing about France is, I think, the landscape. The fact that France is so varied that you can go from the Mediterranean gardens to uh, Brittany and the ocean, you know, the mountains and the orchards near uh, Lyon. You have obviously the most beautiful city in the world, Paris, in the middle. Um, it, is, it is, I think it's a magical country and I miss it. And we miss you too, Sylvie. So you have to get over to us soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for teaching us all about the cassoulet on uh, Fabulously Delicious. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to read all about it in your book. Merci beaucoup for joining us, Sylvie. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. Merci. Merci. What a great chat with Sylvie Bigard. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to jump in and make a cassoulet now. Maybe not the three-day version, but you never know. If you'd like to get a copy of Sylvie's books, the links are in the show notes for this episode. That's it for another fab episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. See you next week. 
Merci and bon app. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.